Stay with us following Crosswalk for this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. You can stand in downtown Raleigh and shout, Jesus is Lord, and people look at you a little funny. But you stand in downtown Tehran and announce Jesus is Lord, and people try and kill you. It's standing firm in the hard places. Compromise, that's a word that fits well into our culture. Get along, give a little, don't be so dogmatic. But can Christians really do that? Maybe you're in a work situation where it's dog-eat-dog and cutthroat, and the only way to get ahead is by stomping on other people, and, and you refuse to do that and, in fact, put others ahead of yourself. The world might call you foolish, but Jesus calls you my faithful one. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, Jesus sent a letter to the church in Pergamum that was struggling with the pressure to compromise. Pergamum was a powerful political city that demanded its citizens' loyalty to the emperor. It was also a very religious city with temples and shrines and altars to a variety of gods. In the middle of all that was a small group of followers of Jesus trying to remain faithful to their Lord. Some had come into the church and were trying to convince them that they really didn't need to be so rigid about their faith, that they could compromise a little. And they used God's love and God's grace as the, as the justification to do it. They said, listen, God's a God of love. A, we can do whatever we want. It doesn't really matter because God's a God of love and God's a God of forgiveness. And, and you know, we can just compromise. In a very real sense, you and I face the same challenges today in our culture. Today, Pastor Clay is taking us through Jesus' letter to the believers in Pergamum to help us see the importance of our theology and the dangers of compromise. We're glad you've joined us today. Everybody everybody knows the book of Revelation as... The, the prophecy stuff. That's what everybody thinks of. It's the exciting stuff. Let's, let's get to that. Let, let's, let's get to all the stuff that's going to happen, all those uh, you know, events and, and things like that. If you've never done a, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation and you've been coming to this uh, right on, has it struck you yet that, man, this is, this is book of Revelation. This is all about prophecy. And we've been doing this. We're, we've been at this six weeks now, and he still hasn't said nothing about prophetic events. Isn't it interesting that, that Jesus' first words are to the church? What's going on in our lives right now? Because this is where we are. This is our, our here and now. I, I want to know about the, the, what's going to happen out there. And I want to know about the, the then and, and there and all that kind of stuff. But isn't it interesting that, that Jesus said, no, wait a minute. Before we get to that stuff, church, we've got some things we need to talk about. And so he does that. He, he talks to us, the church, and the, I'm referring to the church universal, those who are part of the body of Christ. He talks us through the ages, through these seven letters that he wrote to seven actual churches that existed in, the, in a province of Rome that's known as Asia Minor. Today, we're looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum, in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 12 through 17, I believe it is. Interesting things going on at Pergamum. It made me think of, uh, of my life uh, and where I am in my life. Most of y'all may know that I am a, a grandfather, a grandfather of two. Um, 
with a, a third on the way, and then we just found out this uh, past week, a fourth on the way, our oldest son and his wife are expecting for the first time. And so uh, I, know, I know I don't look like a grandfather. I understand that. I, it's, that's, that's my cross to bear. I understand I look, look young. But <laughs> that would be my wife. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, that, that perspective of, uh, of grandfathering, grandparenting, and, and how I, I've, I've shifted on some things. <laughs> my wife's shaking her head. Yeah, you sure have. I, I, um, my, my grandson, Wyatt, and Dakota, both of them, Cindy keeps them uh, most days of the week. And so they're there. And Dakota's about to turn a year old, and Wyatt is uh, two and a half over that. He'll be, he'll be three in June. But uh, so Wyatt, you know, I mean, I guess because he's the oldest and all, so he's my buddy, you know. So every day when he comes in, every day when Cindy goes and gets him, brings him in, he walks in, he says, Poppy, Poppy. And I'll be downstairs, you know, in my study, and I'll say, What? He'll say, Wyatt's here. And I'll say, Woohoo, Wyatt's here. <laughs> the other day he was supposed to be taking a nap, and Cindy had taken Dakota to the doctor's. And so Wyatt's supposed to be taking a nap. I'm down in my study, and he's up on the third floor supposedly taking a nap, and I hear, uh, he's not in bed, so I go up there, and uh, uh, he, you know, he's up, and so I said, get back in bed, you go to, go, go to sleep, so I go back down in the study, I'm working again, and then a little while, running around, so I go up there the second time, and just as I get to the top of the stairs, he's sitting there, he's sitting on the, on the steps, and, and looking at me, he says, Wyatt, wake up! <laughs> and I said, Wyatt has not woken up, Wyatt never went to sleep, I said, now you get in that bed, and he turned around, he runs into the bed, and he, as he jumps in the bed, I, as he jumps in bed, I notice this, something jumps up, and he says, why did he tic-tac? <laughs> now, if y'all know, if y'all know me, I, I, I have tic-tacs. I like tic-tacs, and I have tic-tacs. Well, he knows where my tic-tacs are. So he's got a gob of tic-tacs sitting on the bed, you know, and some of them have been in his mouth, and some of them haven't yet made it to his mouth. And quite a few he has eaten. And I said, uh, I said uh, how many, how many Tic Tacs did Wyatt eat? He goes, one, two, three, four. I said, never mind. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. But now, you know, there was a day when if, if he was my kid, I'd have worn his behind out. <laughs> I, mean, I just worn him out. But what, you know what I did? I'm out. I just, all right, well, come on, get in bed. We'll, we'll then the next week, uh, I'm down in the study, and Cindy's upstairs doing something with Dakota, and uh, I go upstairs, and there's Wyatt, and he's on the couch, and he's got, I didn't even tell Cindy this, I don't think, he's got, you know those sprinkle things that you put on cakes and stuff? He has got those everywhere. He had taken this stool over to the pantry, opened it up, you know, right where these sprinkle things were, they put, they, Cindy puts on cakes, and he has got them everywhere. And you say, why I'd eat candy. I say, yeah, why well, definitely eating candy. And it's everywhere. And you know what I did? You know, I, I, I went in cahoots with the kid. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm like whispering. It dawned on me. I'm like, so you got to get this cleaned up. If Nani sees us, she's going to kill you. Well, come on, we got to get, and I'm, I'm cleaning up stuff, you know? And I thought later, if that had been my kid, I'd have, I'd have worn him out. And, and so I have compromised my position when it comes to, to a discipline. I, I fully comprehend that. Now, if you are uh, the children's parents, 
Uh, you probably are not happy when grandparents compromise the discipline issue. If you're a grandparent, you can probably identify with, with, what, I'm, with what I'm saying. Revelation chapter 2 is a story about compromise and the struggle of compromise. Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 12, let me begin reading it to you, and then we'll break the story down. Remember, seven different letters, one after the other, in chapter 2 and chapter 3. It takes up two chapters. We write these seven letters to seven actual churches. But the application applies not only to them, but to the church on through the age and right down to us. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Pergamum. According to Warren Wiersbe, the word Pergamum means marriage. And that's probably pretty appropriate, as it turns out, for this church in Pergamum, because One of the expectations of marriage, if you think about this, one of the expectations of marriage is faithfulness. There is an expectation in marriage that that your spouse will be faithful to you, that they will not that they will not uh, go looking for any others, that, that that their love and their devotion, their belief in you will remain steadfast. Church in Pergamum, they're having a problem with this. They're struggling in this, I, this area of faithfulness. Let me tell you why. Pergamum was a political powerhouse, the city itself. It was a political powerhouse. It was the, the capital of the Roman Empire in, in the province of Asia Minor. Remember, the Roman Empire is broken into all these different provinces. Asia Minor was one of those provinces, the area that today that makes up Greece and, and Turkey and, and that area over there. Pergamum was the political capital of that area, and it was a, a great and a powerful city. You may remember, if you are here a few weeks ago, I mentioned the city of Ephesus and what a great and grand city it was, probably the grandest of all the cities in Asia Minor, and it probably was. Well, if you think of Ephesus as the New York City of, of that day in Asia Minor, Pergamum was the Washington, D.C., if you will. It was, it was a place where the people were proud to be part of the Roman Empire. We're, we're glad to be called Romans. We're glad that they're part of us. They, they were... They were, they were proud of it. They were so proud of it, uh, they, 
were the first city in Asia Minor to construct a temple to uh, honor and worship the emperor. I made reference to this before. This, uh, each week I've made reference to this. It was a part of what was going on in those seven churches. Something that's called the emperor cult or emperor worship. The, the idea that the Roman Empire said, have whatever religion you want, worship whatever you want, but on top of that you must bow down and acknowledge emperor. You must say Caesar is Lord. Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to actually construct a temple to uh, the, the emperor. They were proud to be. And so naturally, anybody that was a citizen of Pergamum, if you're going to be a good citizen, right? You're going to be a good citizen. You've got you to be in step with the rest of the, the people, citizens of Pergamum. You've got to be uh, a good citizen of Rome. Uh-oh, there's that problem again. keeps showing up every week in these letters. There's a problem for the church in Pergamum because... Because they can't do that. And I know I've discussed that several times. I'm not going to go into it in depth. But, but they're, they're believers in Jesus. They can't bend their knee and acknowledge Caesar as Lord. They, they can't do that. Because our belief system is built on a belief system that there is one God, as I said last week, who has revealed himself in three persons. And that he is God and, there is, and, 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 that, and that's all. So that was going to be a problem for those in Pergamum. They, they, they were going to have a hard time bending their knee. They, they couldn't do that. So... The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. We'll talk about him in a moment. In the midst of this political powerhouse, by the way, I didn't even mention this, but not only was it a political powerhouse, but it was, uh, uh, Pergamon was a very religious city. Uh, I mean, it was, besides the temples to uh, Caesar, there was, a, from what I understand, there was a giant altar to the, to the primary Greek god Zeus. There were temples to Athena, the goddess of wisdom. There were temples to Dionysus, the god of wine. And probably most prominent, there was a temple to Asclepius, Asclepius, I think is how you say it, the Greek god of, of healing or of medicine who was always depicted with a staff in his hand and a snake wrapped around the staff, which most of you probably would know is still a sign of medicine today. It was a very religious city. You know, I think it's one of the great ironies of the world today is that Satan, our adversary, has kept more people from a relationship with God through religion than, than probably anything else that you could think of. Isn't that ironic? That it is religion that he has used primarily to keep people from a relationship with God. It was a very religious and powerfully political city. And in the midst of this is this tiny little band of believers who Jesus says they're standing firm in the face of all of that. And by the way, I think it's exactly what Jesus means in verse 13 where he makes reference to Satan's throne and then to, to the place where Satan dwells. I think what he's saying is, is this... This place is a stronghold of the enemy. There, there's all these different temples, all these different religions, this emperor cult worship. There's this, uh, this snake whole, this, this whole thing. This is a stronghold of the enemy. This is where Satan dwells. He has, he has power here and he's working among those people. And here's this little group of people and they're, they're standing firm and Jesus' actual, uh, what he says, he actually says, 
you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. It's, it's holding fast. It's holding firm in the hard places in life. And to make application for us in the hard times of life. Listen, you know what? You can stand in downtown Raleigh and shout, Jesus is Lord. And people look at you a little funny. But you stand in downtown Tehran and announce Jesus is Lord and people try and kill you. It's standing firm in the hard places. It's uncompromising in your belief systems. And, and Pergamum, man, they're, they're standing strong. Jesus even mentions, this, uh, even mentions this guy, Antipas. This is the only place he's ever mentioned. Don't know a thing else about him. He's mentioned one place in Scripture, this Antipas guy. We know nothing else about the rest of his life. We know that he was killed for his faith. We know that he refused to deny that Jesus was Lord. He refused to bend his knee to Caesar. We know that he was martyred. He was killed, put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. We know nothing else about him. But I'll tell you something. Jesus knew him. Jesus calls him by name. And he gives him a new name, which may be connected to verse 17. He gives him a new name. He calls him my faithful one. Listen, that might be a good place just to stop. Can I say this to you this morning? Wherever you are in your life, if you're, if you're trying to live for Jesus, can I just remind you today that taking your stand for Christ in the midst of situations that aren't always easy never goes unnoticed by God. Never. You remember that word? It shows up here again in the letter to Pergamum where Jesus says, I know. I have intimate, complete, full knowledge of what's going on in your life. Maybe this is a good time to remind you. Maybe you're here and, and, and you're a, a teenager or you're a young adult and you've made this decision that you're going to remain sexually pure until your wedding. And the world looks at you and calls you silly. But Jesus calls you my faithful one. Maybe, you, maybe you're in a work situation where it's, where it's dog eat dog and, and cut throat and the only way to get ahead is by stomping on other people and and. and taking advantage of them, and you refuse to do that and, in fact, put others ahead of yourself. The world might call you foolish. Jesus calls you my faithful one. Jesus knows. I just, just throw that out to remind you that in the hard places, standing firm never goes unnoticed by God. But not everything is good in Pergamum. Let me read it to you again, verse 14. But... Jesus says, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, let me read this, this whole thing in its context. You have there the teaching, those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idol, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way, that's key, in the same way hold the teaching of of the Nicolaitans. Now you may remember, again, if you've been here, you may remember that I mentioned the Nicolaitans a few weeks ago when we, when we looked at the ch- letter to the church in Ephesus. The Nicolaitans were showing up there as well. And you may remember in, in the letter to the church of the Nicolaitans, Jesus commends the Ephesians for not giving in to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He, he commends them. As a matter of fact, he says, you haven't given in to them. You hate their teaching like I hate it. Very strong term Jesus uses uses. The Ephesians were struggling with their fervor. They were struggling with their passion for the Lord. But buddy, their their theology, they, they were getting that right. Pergamum was beginning to go down a dangerous road 
Pergamum was beginning to yield in some of the areas of their doctrinal or theological beliefs. I said this then, and I'll say it again now. Listen, your theology, what you believe about God matters. It does matter. Now, I said back then in the letter to the church in Ephesus that we don't know not a lot about the Nicolaitans. But some of what we know comes from this passage right here where Jesus identifies them with the teaching of Balaam. And that's what he's doing. He's saying the Nicolaitans are teaching the same thing that Balaam taught to Balak. Okay, what did Balaam teach to Balak? The story of Balaam, uh, and and if you haven't read it, or even if you have, go back and read it. It's a great story. Numbers chapters 22 through 25, I think is where you find the story. In Numbers chapter 22... Balak, who is one of the kings of the Midianites and the Moabites, Balak and the Midianites and Moabites, they're scared. The Israelites are, are, are moving into their, to their land that God had promised them. They're strong, they're powerful, their God goes before them. And, and the Midianites and the Moabites, they're scared. They're saying, whoa, we, what are we, look at all these people. There's so many of them, they're going to they're gonna wipe us out. We've got to wipe them out. So they hire Balaam, who was a prophet of the day. They hire Balaam to come and pronounce a curse on the Israelites. And they promised him all different kinds of stuff and buttered him up. They said, yeah, come on over here, Ben. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. Because we, they, they, we want to get rid of them. So Balaam says, okay, but listen, ultimately I can only speak what God reveals to me. I can only say what God reveals to me. God did speak to Balaam, and he told Balaam... You'll speak no curse on the Israelites. As a matter of fact, instead of a curse, you're going to speak a blessing upon them every time. Balaam obeys God. Even though he's been hired by the bad guys, okay? He obeys God. He speaks a blessing, which, as you can imagine, ticks Balak and the Midianites and Moabites off. Because they hired the guy to speak a curse. And they want the Israelites wiped out. And here he is speaking a blessing over them. Makes them mad. But here's what we find out. And you don't find it out until later, interestingly enough. In Numbers 31, you find out that even though Balaam obeyed God and did not speak a curse over the nation of Israel, he did go to Balak and he told Balak, now listen to me, he told Balak how to defeat the Israelites. Essentially, here's what he said, now listen, they're they're, they're too strong, they're too powerful, their God is going before them, you can't beat them, just forget them, you're you're never going to beat them in battle. But here's what you do. Send your women out there. Send your women out there. Tell them to dress a little provocatively. Tell them to flirt with them and kind of lead them into following them back and and joining in with them in in the worship of of your gods and and entering into some, some, uh, some relationships with them. Go send your women out there. Can I just stop here for a minute? This is a sidebar, okay? This is a sidebar from the main message. But what is it with men and sexual temptation? Do you know what I'm saying? Okay, I understand women can be tempted sexually. I understand that. But men are like, you know, some woman shows some little bit. Of, it's like, uh, uh, you know, they're like, they're like zombies. What, 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 is, what is it with that? What? Ladies, as a sidebar, okay, a sidebar. Ladies, if you're married, can I say this to you as your pastor? If you're married, make sure that you're doing all that you can to keep the physical relationship of your relationship strong and vibrant and healthy. Okay? 
Now, ladies, I know what you're thinking. Spoken like a true man. <laughs> okay, I admit it. I'm pro-sex. I, I think it was one of God's better inventions. I'll, I'll give you that, okay? Designed to be between a man and a woman in a covenant relationship? I, I, I got no qualms about that. I, I, I admit that. But listen to me. I was thinking about this. I have spent roughly half of my life in pretty serious, in-depth study of this book. I've spent more than half of my life married to the same woman. I've done the counseling with the men dealing with the guilt and the ladies dealing with the betrayal. And, and again, I understand and I, I, I know that ladies can be tempted in that way too. But, but the enemy is real and men are stupid, okay? That's, I'm, just, I'm just saying it to you. Oh, just get them to compromise. Just get them to give in a little. Just get, them to, just get them to compromise on their moral conviction. Just get them to compromise on their beliefs just a little bit. Just get them to, to move just a little bit in this area, and you'll have them. And the Israelites did that. They compromised, and God sent a plague among their midst, and 24,000 of them fell dead. And somebody says, well, I, I, I just don't think God ought to, ought to do something. Listen to me. This is God. This is God. This is not some... Man made up, some man-centered, some man's idea of some grandfather image dozing off or, or winking at sin. This is God. He says what he means and he means what he says. So, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was what, what Jesus is saying. that they're, they're doing the same thing that Balaam taught Balak to do. And the teaching is this. Compromise. Just compromise. Get them to move some. Get them to move a little in their beliefs. And you'll start them down a path that'll take them further and further and further. And deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. It's compromise. That's what the Nicolaitans were were doing. And listen, I told you, they're in the church. They would profess their belief in Jesus. They would say, Jesus is Lord. But here's, listen, listen, can you hear it? Here's what they would say. Listen, guys, everybody knows Caesar's not really a god. Everybody knows he's just a man like, like we are. So listen, what's the big deal if we throw a little, little incense on the altar? What's, what's the big deal if we, just, if we just bend down real quick and say, uh, Caesar's Lord? You know, it's, I mean, we know he's not really a god, so what difference really would it make? Listen, as a matter of fact, if we do that, we won't be persecuted. If we do that, we'll be able to hold on to our property and we won't be put to death. And, and who knows, maybe even someday we might even have our own temple up there beside Zeus and, and, and Athena and all the rest. And we might be right up there beside them. Come on, just give a little ground here. Just, just let up a little. Compromise. That's, that was the danger that Pergamum was running into. That was the struggle that they were having. And Jesus said, oh, you, you've been doing so good, but, but you've begun to put up with the, with the Nicolaitans. I just, I don't, it's not up on the screen or anything, but, but Peter writes, First Peter, I think chapter 4, verse 17, Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. In other words, when, when, there's, when there's teaching going on, when there's something going on that, that, that is leading people in the wrong direction, it needs to be dealt with. And, and Jesus said, you're becoming a little tolerant of the Nicolaitans. You're beginning to listen. And they're, come on, guys, come on. Just give a little. Just compromise a little. Just let up a little. Just don't be so dogmatic about this. We know there's not God. By the way, we also, most scholars believe that the Nicolaitans also 
called for compromise in the area of, of uh, physical indulgences. And they used God's love and God's grace as the, as the justification to do it. They said, listen, God's a God of love. It, we can do whatever we want. We can join in in their, in their, in their, in their uh, prostitution temple worship. We can, we can, it doesn't really matter because God's a God of love and God's a God of forgiveness. And, and you know, we can, we can just join in with that. Just compromise. So the BP squared, real quick, let me get the BP squared. The big picture biblical principle is this. Watch out for the lies that lead to compromise. Watch out for them because they're out there. They're in your life. Now, let me tell you this. Sometimes those lies might come directly from from Satan, from the demonic forces, from the enemy. Sometimes they might come from a world system around us that tells us to to give in, to get along, to to do this or, 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 or do that. And sometimes they come straight from myself, from my own flesh and what my flesh wants. Watch out for the lies that lead to compromise. Now, you could probably think of some lies, some, some ideas that might, might be running around up there, but I, I, just, I just thought of a few, jotted a few down. Could, could, I just, could I just remind you a couple of those? How about one of these? Well, God wouldn't want you to be unhappy, right? I mean, come on. God wouldn't want you. I've heard that one before. God wouldn't want you to be unhappy. This may come as a shock to some of you here, but God is much more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. Or, or how about this one? Well, God wouldn't want you to suffer. I mean, you, you know, you shouldn't. I mean, if, if this is happening to you because of your, you know, God wouldn't want you to, to suffer. Oh, nobody's ever going to know. Nobody's going to know about it. I mean, come on, you know, what, what difference does it make? Nobody ever know. Or how about this one? Everybody else doing it? Everybody else is a part of it? Goodness gracious. Come down off of your high horse. Everybody else is joining in? Or how about this one? You deserve this. Oh, listen, you, 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 you deserve this in your life, or you deserve to have this happen to you. you, you you've, you've done so. You've, it's lies that lead to compromise. Um, real quickly, in verse uh, 16, Jesus gives the, the same command that he gives everywhere where he, where he has to get onto the church about something, and it's the same command that he's still giving today. It's the same thing. Therefore, repent. Turn around. Stop doing it that way. Start doing it my way. Therefore, go in a new direction. It's really what, what the word means. It's not just feeling sorry. I've said this over and over again. It's not just, oh, I feel really bad about that, and I feel guilty about that. It's saying, no, I'm changing. From this moment on, stop doing it that way. I'm going to turn. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going and following God's direction. Therefore, repent. He says, or else I'm coming quickly to you and I will make war against them. And he, and he says this, with the sword of my mouth. And I brought the sword up. I'm just saying this as a wrap up, just so you'll know. He, he brought the sword up earlier in his introduction, verse 2, I mean in verse 12, when he said, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Uh, it's, it's very emphatic in the original language that's written. And there's actually uh, what, what's called a definite, there'd be a definite article in front of not only uh, uh, the sword, but also in front of the adjectives that describe it. So it literally would read uh, the would read the sword, the sharp one, the two edged one, which here and in chapter one and, and numerous other places in scriptures clearly revealed to us. What he's talking about is the word of God. 
that the word of God is this sharp, two-edged sword. And it's the word of God that brings conviction. It's the word of God that brings change. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm bring, the implication is, I'll bring the hammer down if I have to. I'll do what I have to do to protect the purity of my church, my bride. This is God. He says what he means, and he means what he says. Therefore, repent, turn around, walk away from the teachings of the Nicolaitans that are trying to get you to compromise. Balaam taught Balak that. The Israelites compromised. It cost them deeply. If you, if you compromise, it will cost you with me. Verse 17, there it is again, every single time. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I really take that as more of a personal uh, word. He's speaking to the church overall, but, but as he closes out each letter, it's almost, it's almost like he's saying, you know, Ernie, listen to me. Tim, listen to me. Kevin, listen to me. If you have an ear, hear what I'm saying to you. Forget about what anybody else thinks. Forget about what anybody else does. Listen to me. Are you listening to what I'm saying? And in this case, he's saying, beware of the lies that lead to compromise. And he closes, as he does all of these, these letters, with this, this promise that looks to eternity and, and this, this white stone which in ancient times was, was given as, as sort of a, a, a validation, an entrance. It was almost like a ticket you could think of that, that, that got you. And what he's saying is, listen, if, if, you're, if you're really in relationship with me, you're going to turn away from this and, and I'm going to bless your life and there's an eternity to come where all this will fade away. But you've got to repent. You've got to turn away from it if you're entertaining it right now. Would that we would be more like Antipas and recognize the lies when they come towards us. Where are the lies that lead to compromise? Stand firm. Let me just close with some verses of Scripture that just, just to help reinforce this, remind you of this in uh, Deuteronomy. I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 10. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Watch this. Here's the idea. Hold fast to Him. He's your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. And uh, then in First Thessalonians chapter 5, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast. There it is again. Hold fast. Stand firm to that which is good. And then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Hold fast. Don't compromise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've been walking through the early part of the book of Revelation, those have become familiar words to us. Those of us who are part of the body of Christ need to heed Jesus' warning. The Nicolaitans were trying to convince the church that compromise of your beliefs and practices was okay. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that compromise is not His desire for us. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships, and instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7, and we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Oh, no.
Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now, this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Q&A time at uh, Cross Culture Church. Uh, Each week we take a question that you have turned in and we work on that question and uh, try and deal with it uh, based on Scripture, what the Bible has to say. Interesting question, more of a theological question. Sometimes we get practical questions. Sometimes we get theological questions. Sometimes we get some combination thereof. Today is more of a a theological uh, question to deal with. Q&A time. And here's what the question is for uh, today. Looks like this. Are those churches that believe in speaking in tongues or private prayer language being sinful? Is that a false teaching or is it a matter of different interpretation? Aren't you glad somebody asked? Now, uh, by asking that question, they're obviously assuming that a cross-culture church is not a church that believes in speaking in, uh, in tongues. And, uh, and, and that would be correct in the way that most people assume that what, what somebody means when they say that. Let's, let's break it down. Are those churches that believe in speaking in tongues or private prayer language being sinful? Uh, let's deal with that question. I would say in answer to that question, no. Uh, that, a, that a church that practices speaking in tongues, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, is not being sinful uh, by uh, practicing uh, speaking in tongues. Um, is it a... Uh, is it a false teaching? In my understanding, as I understand Scripture, it is a false teaching in the sense that it is uh, incorrect. My belief is that, that, that their interpretation of, of that Scripture is incorrect. And so it is a false teaching in the sense that it's not, that it's not scriptural. But that does not mean that it's necessarily sinful. So, in answer then to the, uh, to the follow-up question... Uh, is it a matter of different interpretations? I would say the answer to that is yes. It is a matter of different interpretations. But having said that, that does not necessarily mean that everybody's right. Do you understand? Uh, because the, the implication of that question seems to me to be, well, is it just a matter of interpretation? In other words, you have your interpretation, you have your interpretation, you have your interpretation, and we all just go with our interpretations. Remember this, ultimately, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. If, um, if you and I have a bowl of soup, somebody makes us a bowl of soup, and you and I both uh, have a bowl of that soup, and you say, that soup is delicious, and I say, that soup is terrible, we can both be right because our interpretation is based on our personal experiences and our personal preferences. God's Word doesn't work that way. God's word is based on God's authority, and it's based on God's truth. And so when we're talking about interpreting Scripture, ultimately somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Now, in some sense, we may not know till we get to heaven on some things who was right and who was wrong. And I don't know that we'll be standing in heaven saying, eh, I told you, but, you know. In some sense, some things we may not, not know, but, but I, I want to make sure that you understand that. And when we talk about, you know, okay, we've all got our interpretation. That doesn't mean that we're all right. Ultimately, because God's Word is authoritative, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Um, I would also uh, uh, say this. Uh, 
about this whole idea of, of, of speaking in tongues and private prayer language. We're really talking, in some sense, about two different things. We talk about churches that, that practice speaking in tongues and private prayer language. Those are, in some sense, two different things, although there, there is some correlation. Uh, they're, they're sort of separate. The, uh, the idea of speaking in private prayer language has to do with this, this belief that, that when I'm alone and I'm with God, the Spirit takes over uh, sometimes when I'm praying and I don't even know what I'm saying and, and just this begins to come out of me and I don't even know what it is, but it's the Spirit praying for me. Speaking in tongues in the, as it's practiced in the church would be uh, normally would look like this. One person or, or persons, it might be more than one person, would stand up in, in the midst of the congregation, the, the people, and would begin to speak. Although the language that they were speaking, if I can use that term, the, the, the sounds that would be coming out of their mouth would be uh, indiscernible. Um, I don't mean this to be insulting, but it, it would basically be gibberish. Um, to most of the people gathered, if not all the people gathered in that place. So speaking tongues in the church is a little different from what somebody says. They say, well, I have this private prayer language. I don't have time to deal with both of them in depth, but I will say this, that the idea of private prayer language is based primarily, and there's several, but primarily on Romans, uh, passage in Romans uh, chapter 6, I think it is, it says this, in the same way, the Spirit also joins to help in our weaknesses, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Romans chapter 8, sorry, verse 26. I, I, and there are some other verses, and I'm not trying to short uh, circuit, you know, somebody that believes in speaking in tongues, and, and I understand there's a lot we can say about it, but based on that verse, I, uh, there's, there's two problems that I would have with, with pulling a private prayer language from Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Uh, number one, the text seems to indicate that it is the Spirit, that the Spirit is praying, not you. And so it's, it seems to be something that the Holy Spirit does for us, and I'm so glad that He does. I'm so glad that, that even when I don't know how to pray or what to pray, that God's Holy Spirit can pray for me. And somebody might say, well, can can God pray to God? Well, why not? God the Son prayed to God the Father all the time when He was here on earth. And part of the Spirit's purpose as He comes in to dwell in our life is to intercede for us. So it says the Spirit's praying, not me. Number two, uh, the text seems to clearly indicate that it is unspoken groanings. Now, I think that word groanings is probably what, what trips us up. But, but the implication is that, that there's no sound being generated at all. At least that's how it appears to me in Romans chapter 8. There are other verses and all that kind of stuff. But that being said, let me just real quickly wrap this up and say this. Um, when we talk about tongues, when you hear somebody say, oh, our church, in our church we speak in tongues. Remember this. We're always going by what Scripture says, right? The Greek word that the New Testament was originally written in for tongues is glossa. And it simply means language. It's what the word means. Uh, we get our uh, word glossary from it. It means language. And it clearly was other languages, other known languages that were spoken in the world at that time. First appearance in scriptures, Acts chapter 2, where uh, the apostles are gathered together and, and they begin to speak in other languages because there were people gathered there from all over the different parts of the, the known world who spoke different languages and God made it possible for them to be able to understand what was being spoken uh, because they were able to hear it in their, their own language. So, 
Uh, Acts chapter 2 is where it appears. It always seems to refer to in Scripture to a known language, not some ecstatic uttering or anything else like that. Bottom line is this. Um, There's a lot to be said about tongues and how it was practiced and whether there's any implication for the world today. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 finishes up his chapter by saying this, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And he did. And it would make sense. Paul was an evangelist. He was an apostle. He was basically a missionary. He traveled everywhere. And so it would make sense that God would have given him the supernatural ability to speak in, in languages that people could understand. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than, any, than all of you. However, in the church, in the ecclesia, the gathered ones, it, and when we're gathered together, I desire to speak five words with my mind. In other words, five, uh, I'd rather speak five words that you can understand and that you can, that you can comprehend that I might instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a language that you didn't understand. That's Q&A for today.